comrades and welcome to our next lesson on issue 9 exploring the impact of a Stalinist society on that of its civilians and today we're going to turn to have a look at education during this period of transition. Now particularly what we have to remember is the goals of education. The communists tend to believe that education was important Lenin believed that a high level of education with basic literacy was an essential part of building socialism. Socialism required industrialization, which required a well-educated workforce who could understand the complex process and progress of history and industry. Education served the long-term goals of the revolution by laying the foundations of that of the industrialization too as well. And very much so that they believed that the primary goal of education was to allow the individuals to flourish. So particularly with education, it is seen as liberating that of a student rather than necessarily seeing it as it to serve goals of the revolution. So there's a number of questions um, that are raised when it comes to education. Should communists continue with traditional forms of education or create a new kind of revolutionary education? Should communists work with educated people, even though they might be a part of the original elite? How should communists educate the millions of workers with little to no formal education? Questions are complicated by the practical problems of organising education, such as low levels of literacy, with only 32% of the population could read and write by 1914. There was also educational inequalities. Russians tended to be better educated than that of non-Russian. So we have issues there in terms of urban education over that of rural education. Also, the practical problems and ideological debates made things even more complicated by the notion that after 1918, Russia was in a state of transition rather than the actual socialist state. Therefore, some communists argue that in the short term, compromises were vital between socialist principles and to the need to rebuild society after that of the civil war. Now, particularly that with Lenin, in October 1918, the Soviet government issued a decree with reforms which established unified labour schools to provide free polytenic education to all children of the ages 8 to 17. It banned religious instruction in schools. It introduced co-educational schools ending gender segregation of schooling. It abolished corporal punishment, homeworks and exams. It promised free breakfast for school children and free medical exams. Education became compulsory. Secondary schooling designed to be vocational. Government proposed that the creation of factory schools or professional schools where people learned about skills required to work in factories. And particularly there's an argument of favouring progressive teaching methods based on the theories of John Dewey. So particularly learning through play rather than that of textbooks. So under the conditions of the Civil War, there was insufficient resources to invest in the education system. Free compulsory education was not actually achieved and schools did not have resources to provide free meals or medical checkups too as well. Under the era of the new economic plan and policy, education is furthermore affected. Education provision declined in the first years. Finance issues meant cuts in educational provision and forced some schools to close to save money, introduce fees to pay for primary and secondary education for all except the poorest children. 
scrapped plans to open children's homes for 7 million children orphaned during that of the Civil War. And in the first 18 months of the new economic plan, the number of children education halved, as did that the number of schools. In the mid-1920s, when we have a look at the Soviet era of education, with the economy being stabilised, the education system did expand. From 1927, the fees for primary schools were abolished. From then on, the majority of children received a four-year primary education. By 1928, about 60% of Soviet children of primary school age were in school. 10% more than that during the revolution for these revolutionary years. Still, inequalities are existing in the education system. Such as in towns and cities, children in education tended to get the four years of primary education, whereas in the countryside, children were unlikely to complete even three years of education. In terms of secondary education, there is a new direction. So under the new economic plan, education was funded locally rather than that through the Commissariat of Education. The central government had difficulty controlling that of the curriculum. Rather than follow the education programmes of the polytechnic schools that outlined in 1918, local Soviets took over existing schools by the Tsarist regime. Schools tended to be dominated by children of the wealthy and 97% of students paid fees. Around about 90% of middle class students start secondary school and only 3% of them finished. The vast majority of teachers in former Tsarist schools were trained before the revolution, before they could therefore could teach in that of the traditional way. Their approach to subjects like history remained very much traditional. Government wanted teachers to teach history of class struggle and that of the working class. Teachers ignored this and continued to teach the achievements of that of the Tsar. Lenin believed that the ending illiteracy was crucial to building socialism. Tackling it was a central educational aim. The decree on illiteracy produced in 1919, which required all illiterate people between the ages of 5 to 50 years old to learn to read and write. In terms of the Red Army setup, Trotsky also shared Lenin's view about the importance of literacy. As leader of the Red Army, he introduced education for all soldiers. As a result, literacy rates increased by 50% in 1918 to 86% in 1921, and campaigns continued after the war was won. By 1925, 100% of soldiers in the Red Army could read and write. Outside the Red Army, the Civil War saw a decline in literacy. Communist government published 6.5 million textbooks containing simple rhymes that taught people the advert. Rise in the number of people could identify letters. This campaign did not increase the genuine literacy rate, however. At times, there could be six-week courses in reading and writing, and they were designed to liquidate that of illiteracy. Literacy campaigns were set back up by these factors, but yet the majority of teachers in 1917 did not support this particular regime. Before we uh, turn to really explore that of what Stalin does with education, it's just important to note that Article 121 of the Soviet Constitution declares that citizens of the USSR have the right to education. This right is ensured by universal and compulsory elementary education, by free education up to including that of seventh grade, by a system of state stepbites and students of educational establishment who excel in their studies, by instruction in schools being conducted in the native language and the organisation of factories, state farms, MTSs and collective farms of free vocational, technical and training for that of the working people. But how exactly? Is this high level of productivity to be achieved? And when achieved, how is it to be maintained? 
Clearly, a highly productive society must be equipped with the latest technology. But in order to acquire the technology and then use it effectively, an, education popula an educate, educated population is necessary. Illiteracy must be eliminated. Hundreds upon thousands of Soviet experts must be trained. At the start of this enterprise, the task was enormous and the forces to tackle it are extremely meagre. Education was a key factor and it's well explained by Petty Bourgeois, English writer on education who studied the Soviet education system. He went on to say, the task of building from the ruins of the Russian Empire a modern industrial and socialist society has pushed on with ruthlessness and at a human cost. That is well known. But no measure of ruthless germination could be itself enough. For the success of such projects, such as the five-year plans, the authorities depended on educational development, no less a mustering of manpower and economic resources. There had to be a new force of engineers, scientists, technicians of kind. No possible source of talent could be left untapped. And the only way of meeting these needs was by rapid development of a planned system of mass education. In Tsarist Russia, the education of the masses had been neither necessary or desirable as capitalism was little developed and there was no time to literate working class and education gives people expectations of a better life that Tsar society would never satisfy. As a result, 73% of the population of Tsarist Russia, excluding children under nine, were illiterate. Only a quarter of all children ever went to school. In Soviet Russia, by contrast, besides educating people for higher productivity, Soviet education also had to prepare them to be good citizens in a communist society, encouraging them to let go of attitudes towards work and possessions, for instance, which capitalism had fostered and which many in the older generation still cling to. Historian Grant writes that Soviet education is designed not merely as a machine for the production of scientists, engineers and tacticians, but as an instrument of mass education from which the younger generation gain not only their formal learning, but their social, moral and political ideas as well. Last but not least, political understanding must be developed so that there's an enormous pool of workers with a high level of class consciousness to form the vanguard of continuing class struggle. Grant writes that Soviet society requires political awareness in the mass of the population, this is more than mere conformity, which usually comes with easily free ignorance. Dumb acquiescence will not do. What is needed is conformity. First is knowledge and study of political theory, conformity in a positive sense. The question of education then is crucial with the survival of communism and its development towards its higher stage. As Lenin said, without teaching there is no knowledge, without knowledge there is no communism. That is why during the period of the first two five-year plans, when the Soviet people were straining to ensure their industrial productive capacity, cut off at the most advanced imperialist countries, as they knew the working class state power in the USSR would be wiped out only by imperialist military intervention if they did not succeed, huge resources were nevertheless poured into education, education of adults and children. Between 1917 and 1937, 40 million adults were taught to read. The number of children and students in full-time education increased from 8 million in 1914 to 47 million in 1938 to 39. Secondary school attendance increased from under a million in 1914 to over 12 million in 1938 to 39. Number of university students increased from 112,000 in 1914 to 600,000-100,000 in 1938-39. to and more schools were built in the USR in 20 years than the Tsar's autocracy built in 200 years. But besides providing education in schools, the Soviet Union had organised education for those in work. Particularly when it comes to having a look at the Soviet youth work and play, it speaks for itself. 
An extensive system of courses and study circles provide a wide range of educational facilities, enabling them to become proficient in their particular trade or profession. Vocational training schools attached directly to the factories have been functioning in the Soviet Union for that of 15 years. And since their foundation, the vocational training schools have supplied the country with about 2 million skilled workers in various trades. Besides secondary level education, there was also immense provision for workers to study for university degrees on part-time, mostly correspondence course bases, but closely linked to the universities where students would be called to attend frequently special seminars or activities, much like the Open University in the UK today. This system was observed in operation by Grant in 1959. Part-time students accounted for 45% of the total by 1959. Nevertheless, providing education is one thing, but what about the quality of education? Is it the three R type in terms of reading, writing and arithmetic, limited to enabling a worker to read the instructions for operating machine and to have enough arithmetic to be able to measure materials adequately? Or is education aimed at enabling workers to acquire a real understanding of nature and society? Is it the oppressive rote learning of vast amount of apparently irrelevant facts or the acquisition of general incompetence in the face of complex situations that the world presents to humanity? Is it the inculcation of propaganda designed to enslave or the passport to freedom via appreciation of necessity? One book that enables us to get a glimpse into the reality of Soviet education during Stalin's days is Dina Levin's book Children in the Soviet Union. Levin worked as a teacher in Moscow school from 1938 to 42, having first acquired seven years experience as a maths teacher in the United Kingdom. The school was a typical Soviet school in every respect except its once, namely the teaching was in English. The reason for having an English medium school as that of a Soviet constitution guaranteed to children education in their mother tongue and that many children in Moscow whose mother tongue was English, as there were children of American or English experts, working in Russia or children of Russian workers who had gone abroad to an English-speaking country with their families whose children on their return found it easier being educated in English than that of Russian. However, the school followed the same syllabus as a Russian medium school. They used exactly the same textbooks, only translated into English. They also used exactly the same teaching and discipline methods. It's clear that Dina Levels was a very good school, amongst many others very good schools. However, it's expected not every school had reached the same high levels of standards as that what had been experienced in Moscow. On the surface, much of what Levine says about the methods used to ensure high standards of learning and discipline would sound to a person brought up in the bourgeois society as it might be close to the rhetoric of Mrs. Thatcher, but on close inspection is apparent the difference between rhetoric and the need for high education standards. And the experience of the Soviet Union where the actual achievement of high educational standards was a pressing necessity. Russian education before the communist revolution of 1917 was undergoing an evolution from elite privilege to a popular institution. The political and social upheaval of February and October revolutions of 1917 overturned the growing czar's education system and institutionalised a new education authority. An examination of the evolution of this change focusing on key periods of reform and change of late czar's period throughout the beginnings of the cultural revolution of the 1930s illustrates the effects political change has on Russia and Soviet education. Russian education moved them from the traditionalist to experimental and back according to the trends of government stability and agenda. In addition, the popular role in Russian education, particularly the power of teachers over implementation in reform policy, shaped and even stalled government reform efforts. Beginning with the drastic changes in education policies during the reign of Tsar Nicholas II, we're having a look at examining the impact of government policy and the structure and effectiveness of the education system. 
Government education policy in the late years of the Tsar's autocracy from 1894 to 1904 had inter-revolutionary period of 1905 to 17 did not overly shape the post-revolutionary educational period, but historical trends affected reform implementation at local level. The development of a cohort of teachers that spanned the revolutionary period influenced implementation of educational policy. Following the October Revolution 1917, the Soviet government struggled to establish a new education system that would be based on Marxist principles and operate as an integral part of the restructuring of society. Civil war, material shortages and general lack of effective communication marked the early years of a new regime and rendered many reforms ineffective. These setbacks in early reforms allowed reactionary education policy of the stabilised government to reverse the efforts of the early revolutionaries. Despite the heavy-handed nature of Russian and Soviet governments on education, student groups have historically had so much content, conscientious and unlikely often dissent. Liberalisation of late Tsarist years led to decommunization of the education system, creating an increasingly educated peasant and working class provided popular pressure for liberalisation and eventually for a revolution. Immediately following the February 1917 revolution, church schools were seized. The unification of the Russian education system was a priority of the revolution, as the education system would mean to structure society. However, the provisional government focused on a moderate reform pace rather than wholescale abolition of existing social political institutions. Following the October Bolshevik Revolution, the Commissariat of Enlightenment of Education received complete control of the system and the short lived Ministry of Education. At first, the Commissar of Education, Antolai Lorensky, led an education policy revolution to match the comprehensive restructuring taking place in society as a whole. He is noted to say, we wipe out everything. It was absolutely clear that the school was due for revolutionary shakeup. I shall not say for destruction or recreation because the school as an existing apparatus are no means due for destruction. He sought to create an education system that would function as a fundamental element of the reorganisation of Soviet society. They attempted to build this system because of the vague prescriptions of Marx and Engels for education in a communist society. Locally controlled public schools which offer a secular and free education for all children, regardless of class. The levels of local autonomy accompanied by teachers and local authorities, ill-equipped and disinclined to rebuild following the communist agenda, create a series of issues with discontinuity and traditionalism, while may counter reforms initiated by Stalin particularly successful. The role of the new education system was a source of contention amongst the leaders of the Bolshevik party. The opponents of the Commissariat of Enlightenment contested that many early reforms. In the speech of education, Marx identified a particular problem with establishing a new social order. On one hand, a change of social circumstances is required to establish a proper system of education. On the other hand, a proper system of education is required to bring about a change of social circumstances. The Bolshevik leadership divided precisely over what stage their struggle in the school school system should embrace, the future classless society or the present dictatorship of the proletariat. There were subsidies and separate individual members, but a central schism broke out in that of the leadership. The focus of the early 1920s was a comprehensive restructuring of the schools as a united universal school system. This would allow the seamless transition of students from one school into the next, allowing this would prepare the system for implementation of a majority universal education through that of the secondary level. Policy and content was limited to the experimental with different forms of politetic education, with the connection of education with life in a meaningful way. The specific context was, according to the alignment of Marxist doctrine, led to the determination of local authorities. 
The party only realised the broadest guidelines to the curriculum, at least for the first years of reform, more specifically outlined what to teach and what not to teach, such as religion. Until 1920, the Commerce of Enlightenment focused on doing away with the pre-revolutionary education structure and attempted to complete a unified ladder-style system that would equalise the still-stratified Russian-Soviet society. However, the United School System would return to create a quality for education experience among Soviet children, not an identical education. The country was torn apart by the Civil War and the Russian people as a whole were not prepared for the new curriculum and education structures immediately following the revolution. The elimination of religion in schools was upset into the population, particularly in the rural areas. The reaction of some parents became violent when teachers attempted to remove crucifixes from the schoolhouse. This was not the norm. Most teachers in schools simply refused to implement these policies. In 1920, after the demand came for common curriculum, leaders began to look abroad for examples of a new education techniques. Lenin's wife Karamska was well reversed in education philosophy, and the Soviet schools soon showed signs of influence from a number of foreign sources, including the American John Dewey and elements of that of the Montessori system. The complex method was of experimental education techniques implemented by the schooling system in the 1920s. Method is not an especially important example of Soviet teaching and implementation of the method, which depended on the destruction of traditional subject divisions of schools, was never successful of most in any schools. The additional array of subjects divided the world into false categories, it was noted. It is important as an example of the constant flux and confusion in Soviet schools in the 1920s. Trial programs in education attempt to create an education system to fit the new social and economic policy under creation and experiment experimentation was natural. However, the teacher populations were offered little support on local level and became resistant to radical change, which soon associated with that of early leadership. The lack of popular and party support for the programmes soon forced the company here to seek compromise. The resulting programmes failed to show any result of country struggle from war communism to new economic policy through the implementation of Stalinist central planning. The focus of education during Stalin's years, Empar abandoned the experimental educational practices of the complex method on learning by inquiry, instead adopting a traditional approach with strong political and ideological components. Stalinist education focused on the uniform teaching of all Soviet children, including an emphasis on the development of Russian language skills in all Soviet non-Russian minorities. The years from the early 1930s through to the World War II saw a considerable draw apart from the Politburo and Central Committee, the Orgoboro. The autonomy had begun to wane during the years. With the final decisions being centrally in Moscow, the curriculum structure of schools became uniform across the Soviet Union, at least in policy, if not that by practice. In the summer of 1931, Lazar Monagas Kavovich, Stalin's spokesman in education, officially called for a permanent turn away from the experimental educational practices such as the project method and increased focus on academia, success and vigour. Due to that of the laxatural implementation of early reforms in some areas, the rejection of experimental programmes is a simply statement of education reality. Teachers and parents joined the government to make this a change. Teachers have felt and left the isolated implementers of the radically experimental education policies during the 1920s, their positions in towns often become more tenuous. During the years of Stalin's in power, the curriculum became heavy politicised and practice of modifying historical lessons were cemented in Soviet policy. Stalin became a key figure of the revolution of 1917 and in the formation of the Red Army. 
Creating a fully literate population remained a central goal of the Soviet education system. To this end, widespread reach was required. The reach of the educational system expanded greatly into school enrollment doubled from 1928 to 31 and continued to grow until World War II. During the war, student enrollment dropped by 25%, but this was back up at pre-war levels by 1950. A central achievement to this Stalin era was the expansion of education. This was of vital importance to the development of ideological cohesive nation and consolidation of power. The state committed to previously unseen amount of expansion and development in the education system. From 1932 to 37, the state's budget allotment for schools increased four times and per capita rose from 10 to 38 rubles per year. In August 1931, the Politburo having seen most real power from that of the traditional academic curriculum free of experimental methods. Over the next four years, the government created a centralised group of textbooks, fixed lesson plans, homework, grading system and every other detail of education policy down to the timetables for each grade. Following the successful creation of a universal compulsory homogeneous system of education during the Stalin years, there was little change until the collapse of the Soviet Union. Robert Conquest notes the period saw fundamental shifts in principle and were directly connected to the emergence of a totalitarian regime in the Soviet Union. Objectivity and the pursuit of truth for its own sake, so far as they survived, gave place to partisanship, propaganda and ultimately to falsification. The increased politicisation of the education system made the schools vulnerable to the over-politicisation of society under Stalin. Elements of this trend affected both the school structure and curriculum. In 1936, following the writing of Stalin constitution, two hours per week of the seventh grade was committed to its study and emphasis of the superiority of the Soviet Soviet social system. However, ever during this highly politicised and police 1930s, a clear distinction between practice and policy persisted in schools. Mandatory periods of political and social education exist, but outside these lessons, schools remain focused on traditional education. Centralised control of education became the norm until the reform efforts of that of Perestrofiga. The experimentation and change had been present during the mid-1920s was limited during consultation of central power during the Stalin's regime. There was little significant change or effective reform during this period. Reform efforts under that of Khrushchev attempt to revitalise the school system and reinstitute polytechnic education as developed in Lenin's years. However, the education community and students, unaccustomed to the true integration of labour education in general schools, rejected that of the reforms. So really, to summarise, what we can see under Stan's uh, era is this campaign again to uh, target that of illiteracy. At the 16th Party Congress in the 1930, he adopted new targets to eliminate illiteracy and ensure the primary school was compulsory during the five-year pants. The government recruited three million volunteers from the Coma Soul to educate the workers and the peasants. Campaigns were organised into military fashion and volunteers were called cultural soldiers, tasked with fighting a cultural war against illiteracy, took place in the middle of Stalin's campaign to collectivise agriculture. As a result, teachers were attacked and associated as government workers, in which uh, some teachers were actually locked in schools and some were set on fire uh, at the schools of the teachers. Teachers were also poorly equipped and poorly supported. There was little textbooks and writing equipment, but in spite of an unpromising start, the campaign was successful. During the five-year plan, 90% of Soviet adults had attended a literacy course. 68% of people were literate by the end of the first-year plan, which was a good improvement from 1928. By 1939, over 94% of Soviet citizens were literate, and literacy rates reflected in the inequalities in that of society. Whilst around 97 men were literate, only 90% of women could read and write, 
Alone literacy rates shot up, no focus on full educational attempt to encourage students to read and write for that pleasure. And mass literacy was still a major success of Stalin's first decade in power. Under Stalin, the government established a stronger control and tighter control over that of the curriculum. From 1932 to 35, the government ordered extensive change to what was allowed to be taught in schools. Changes were a response to criticisms of the People's Commissariat for Education and Educational Standards in Schools by the 1920s and used to strengthen future workforce to become disciplined farmers or that of factory workers. Education under Stalin was expected to create young workers and good workers. In 1931, a decree ordered curriculum to abolish the polytechnic focus created in 1918. Focus on key subjects such as reading, writing, science and mathematics. The aim was to ensure that all people had a foundation level of education required for factories or that of farms. And it is also important to note that in Stalin's education system, it stressed uh, regimented discipline, uh, discipline too as well. And this is reinforced in the 1932 decree introduced to new standards of discipline. Teachers were required to ensure that students actually attended and were punctual. You were required to do homework as well. Students were also expelled from school from uh, misconduct. Discipline was supposed to prepare students for the harsh labour discipline in Soviet factories. And in 1933, textbooks were launched to support the new curriculum. In 1935, a system of national examinations were introduced and grade students for that of management posts. The decree of teaching of civil history in May 1934 focused on history lessons and the new history Soviet textbooks focused on the achievements of great men like Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great. Emerged at the same time as the emergence of cult of Stalin, which became that of one of the great Russian leaders. So really what we can see in terms of themes coming through is that for Lenin, education was an essential building block in creating a socialist society. Each child was to receive nine years of free universal education. The aim was to combine education and political propaganda. Lenin did not believe that education could be politically neutral. The 1919 party programme defined schools as an instrument for the communist transformation of society, even though in the alphabet would carry a political message. A. All part of the Soviets. B. Bolsheviks. C. Communists. And the simple rhymes spelt out the achievements of Soviet power. Pupils were to be cleansed of bourgeois ideas. Religious teaching was to be placed by an emphasis on communist values and atheism. Schools were placed under the Commissariat for Enlightenment. The head of the Commissariat, Lomogorsky, was interested in progressive Western teaching ideas such as those of John Dewey, which stressed learning by doing and the importance of work and play. Between 1919 and 1920, schools were encouraged to follow a more liberal line focusing on the development of a child's personal personality. The authority of the teachers was reduced and they were designated to school workers who shared administrative control with committees drawn from older pupils and factory workers. Teachers were forbidden to discipline or set homework and examinations. Some radicals wanted to do away with schools altogether. On the whole, schooling was a disaster. The new school system failed, though in many areas it was never put to use. The vast majority of teachers were not communists. 33.1% in primary schools and 5.5% in secondary schools had a poor understanding of progressive methods and did not know what was expected of them. Teaching went on so much that it was done before the revolution, only worse because teachers had lost their authority. As a result, the more liberal approach was abandoned and more traditional methods restored with the introduction of new economic policy in 1921. However, matters that did not, however much improve, 
Under the new economic policy, financial pressures meant that the idea of universal schooling had to be abandoned. Many children left school. By 1923, the numbers of schools and pupils were barely half the totals of the years before. Schools did not have the proper resources and teachers were very badly paid. In 1925, a teacher received a fraction of the industrial workers' pay. There was also a lasting legacy of falling standards and a failure of authority in many schools. In the 1920s, there was two main strains in the, of the curriculum. General education, which you could learn about communism and the history of revolution, and practical education focusing on technical subjects and industrial training, with visits to factories, state farms and power stations. The Bolsheviks wanted to increase the number of party members, especially those from working class or peasant backgrounds, who had engineering and technical skill. However, the new Soviet citizen was also to have knowledge of culture as well as industrial skills. The emphasis on indoctrination remained throughout the 1920s, but as a survey in 1927 of school children aged 11 to 15 showed, they become increasingly negative towards communism values as they got older, and nearly 50% still believed in God. Before the revolution, the literacy rate was 65%. This explains why some of the Bolshevik emphasis on visual propaganda and sending of trains all over the country. The Bolsheviks attached great importance to the universal literacy so that all citizens would be exposed to their propaganda and top modern industrial skills. In December 1919, liquidation of literacy was decreed for all citizens between the age of 5, 8 and 50. Illiterates were refused to learn face criminal prosecution. Tens of thousands of liquidation points were set up in cities and villages throughout 20 and 26. Some 5 million people in European Russian went into literacy courses. The Bolsheviks did not leave indoctrination to non-communist teachers. They had a mission to capture the hearts and minds of the young. Two youth organisations were set up the Pioneers for Children Under 15 and the Common Soul for those aged 14 or 15 into their 20s. The duty of these organisations was to spread communist values and promote loyalty of the working class. In later years, they were used as instruments of social control, such as to promote discipline in the schools. The Pioneers were such like the Boy Scouts with activities, trips and camping. The Common Soul was much more serious and used by the communists to take propaganda into towns and villages to attack religious beliefs and bourgeois values. Commissal membership was seen as a preparation for entry into the Communist Party. It played a really important role in the Cultural Revolution of 1928-31. to 31. So what was then the Cultural Revolution? So this was a part of a great upheaval in the USSR associated with the Socialist Offensive, which began at the end of the 1920s with the first five-year plan. There was a return to class warfare of the Civil War and Everything had to go back and compromise of the new economic policy. This was seen as an attack of bourgeois specialists in industry, the neat men and the kulaks. It was accompanied by an attack on old intelligentsia and bourgeois cultural values. Non-Marxists working in academic subjects such as history, philosophy and science, and the cinema, the arts, literature and schools, in architecture and in time planning were denounced. There was an attempt to try and define the purely proletarian approaches in all these fields, so it was labelled a cultural revolution. So really the second decade of communist rule begins with this cultural revolution. It involves a return to class struggle, attacks on bourgeois specialists, industrial workers, and also return to attacking kulaks in that of the countryside. So it's very much a radical programme that's going to impact arts, education and religion. And it follows by that of the Great Retreat, return to traditional values in the family and emphasis on academic standards and discipline in school. So we're seeing in terms of education that was supposed to be a bit more free and revolve around personality and play under that of Lenin. But yes, strong stance in terms of communist ideas that were going back to a very formalised 
centralized structure with that of the Stalinist era. So it was more than an attack on bourgeois values. There was a vision that socialist future might be like of a society transformed people believe great changes were intimate. They have visions of new cities and large communal living spaces where money was no longer the main means of working people and transacting changes. There would be a new Soviet man. Young communists in particular enthusiastically took up the challenge and took the lead in attacking and taking the attack forward on many fronts. They mounted a fierce attack on religion in villages, broke up bourgeois plays by booing and criticising painters and writers who did not follow the party line. The activists had been itching to move forward towards a more proletarian society and proletarian values. They pushed matters further with the leadership wanted. The cultural revolution was not simply a manipulation from above, it gained a momentum of its own. So what was the role here of the Coma Soul in that of the Cultural Revolution? So this Young Communist League had been set up in 1918 to help the party. Its members were aged 14 to 28 and by 1928 it had 2 million members. It was an exclusive club. Many applicants were directed on the grounds of immaturity or insufficiently proletarian social origins. The membership was enthusiastic and left at an opportunity to drive the Cultural Revolution. They were to fulfil a number of roles between 1929 and 1933. First of all, being soldiers of production in the industrial drive, one of the first directors of Magnator site described the Young Commissal as the most reliable and powerful organising force of the construction. They imposed labour discipline, leading and joining shock brigades. They enforced collectivisation. They led campaigns against religion. They kept an eye on bureaucracy, exposing official abuses and unmasking hidden enemies. They weeded out students whose families were members of the former people, attacking non-party professors and teachers with the aim of making the intelligentsia proletarian and also reported on that of the popular mood. Robert Service, in his book A History of the 20th Century Russia, commented, There is no doubt that many young members of the party and the common soul responded positively to the propaganda. The construction of towns, mines and dams was an enormously attractive project for them. Several such enthusiasts increasingly devoted their lives to the communist cause. They idolised Stalin, and all of them, whether they were building the great city of Magdatorsh or tunnelling under Moscow to lay the lines for the metro, were simply teaching that of collectivised peasants how to read and write, though themselves to be agents of progress for the Soviet society and for humanity as a whole. Stalin has its active supporters in their hundreds and thousands, perhaps even millions. Stalin's rule in the 1930s depended crucially upon the presence of enthusiastic supporters of that of the society. So particularly in one case study in terms of Somolsk, where the worker and student composoles were given a major role in leading the collectivisation drive and overseeing all aspects of that for the harvest. Particularly the archive here in Somolsk contains the following resolution passed at the Commissal Committee meeting of the whole area in April 1932. It notes about how the participation in the collectivisation drive universal commissal enrolment and active leadership in preparation for the spring sowing talks about a major role in fulfilling the figures of industrial production during the year, an intensified campaign to enlist industrial and farm workers in the Coma Soul, and prepare for military service and help to liquidate illiteracy amongst the draftees and provide political instructions for them. They were called to act and serve as peace settlers in that of the industry and transport. As that of peace settlers, they were required to enrol in technical courses to improve their qualifications, to organise shock brigades and to encourage competition between the different groups of workers. They were also expected to conduct campaigns to shame that of people who were lottering on the job. What about the Cultural Revolution's impact on education? So traditional teaching and discipline came under attack, as did textbooks, homework and testing and individuals' academic achievement. 
Shulgin, S-H-U-L-G-I-N, a radical who headed an education research institute, before his theory of the withering away of the school. He favoured the project method where education focused on socially useful work, which meant that practical production, both and public activism. He said that a child would be socially useful by gathering firewood, working in a factory, teaching peasants to read, or just disputing anti-religious literature. The child could not, however, be socially useful by sitting in a classroom, reading books, or solving mathematical problems. He believed schools should be directly linked to factories. This could lead to a very narrow education. At one school, all the children of the upper years were trained to poultry breeding technicians, and in Central Asia, children aged between 11 and 13 were exploited as cotton pickers for a week on end. On the other hand, factory managers were not very happy about having untrained and undisciplined children get in the way of their production targets. Although the Cultural Revolution in schools did not last long, it had a lasting effect on teachers. Many older non-party teachers were driven out, branded as bourgeois specialists and replaced by red specialists. The drive to create red specialists can be seen too in the order from the Central Committee to that of 1,000 party members to technical colleges to study for higher degrees. Sheila Switzpatrick has calculated during the first five-year plans 150,000 workers and communists, making up nearly a quarter of all students in higher education, began technical and that of political courses. And just following on from our discussion yesterday with uh, women in the family, the cultural revolution also has an impact there too as well, back to that of uh, family values. Although the 1920s the family had been described as a bourgeois and patriarchal, it remained a key institution. The Soviet urban marriage rate remained very high by both pre-war and contemporary European standards. However, the impact of radical policies, unregistered marriages, postcard divorces and abortion had notably weakened the family. The American sociologist Nicholas Tamshev claimed that millions of girls saw their lives ruined by Don Junis in communist garb and millions of children had never known their parental homes. The upheavals caused by collectivisation with millions of families uprooted and the quicksand society created by rapid industrialisation with thousands of workers constantly on the move had added to the growing problem of social instability. There was concern over the falling birth rate and juvenile crime was increasing as a result of the numbers of homeless children on the street. Soviet society needed some anchors and the mid-1930s saw a positive mood to pro-family, pro-discipline and anti-abortion policies. This change in attitude would be called the Great Retreat. Marriage was to be taken seriously and children urged to love and respect their parents, even if they are old-fashioned and do not like the commissal, as noted in Prava in 1935. The emphasis on change could be seen in the New Family Code of May 1936, in which abortion was outlawed, except if there was a threat to a woman's life. Divorce was made harder, both parents were required to attend divorce proceedings, and a fee for registering a divorce was raised to 50 rubles for the first, 150 for the second, and 300 for any subsequent divorces. Child support payments were fixed at a quarter of the wages or salary, one child, a third for two, and 50 to 60 percent for three or more. Mothers with children with uh, six children receive cash payments of 2,000 rubles a year, a really substantial amount for five years with additional payments for each child up to the 11th. Around the same time, laws were passed against prostitution, homosexuality and having illegitimate children was also stigmatised. The birth rate did rise from about 25 per 1,000 to 30 in 1935 to almost 31 per 1,000 in 1940. Newspapers reported prosecutions of doctors having performed abortions and someone were imprisoned for having abortions, although the punishment for women in these circumstances was supposed to be public contempt rather than that of prosecution. Divorce declined in Leningrad, but so did marriage, and by 1939 the marriage-divorce ratio was not better than that of 1934. About 3.5 marriages for every divorce. 
Because of a high rate of desertion by husbands, many women ended up being the sole breadwinner for families and often consisted of a mother, one or two children and their irresistible Boreshka, which was the grandmother, who ran the household. At all levels of society, though mostly at its lower levels, it was women who bore the brunt of many problems of everyday life in the USSR. However, research, including interviews with refugees carried out by Harvard University Russian Research Centre, shows that the family was resilient and states change of attitude to the family in the middle of the 1930s was positively received. Juvenile crime was perceived as an increasing problem in the first half of the 1930s. For juvenile offenders, the law was relatively mild and rehabilitation was preferable. In 1935, a member of the Pudibaro, Evrat of Varesko, signalled a change and he urged the NKVD should be instructed to clear Moscow immediately not only of homeless adolescents but also of delinquents out of parental control. I don't understand why we just don't shoot these scoundrels, he concluded. A Pudibaro degree in April 1935 allowed just that. It made violent crimes committed by juveniles from 12 years of age punishable in the same way as those committed by adults, though the archives show no examples of actual executions of adolescent hooligans. This was followed by the law of liquidation of child homelessness and lack of supervision, which increased NKVD involvement in attempting to get children off the street into appropriate institutions. Parents could be fined for hooliganism for their children and risk having to take them away and placed in orphanages where parents would have to pay for their maintenance. So just in summary here, and particularly a quote that really encapsulates Stalin's viewpoint and the usefulness of his, of uh, education can be seen in the quote in which he says, education is a weapon whose effects depend on who holds it and his hands and who it is aimed at towards as well. He also says about how ideas are more powerful than guns. We would not let our enemies have guns. Why should we let them have ideas? So particularly education under Stalin meant more widespread and accessible. However, it also means that through Stalin sought to cultivate obedient productive Soviet citizens through the implementation of strict indoctrination and the re-implication of traditional courses. Stalin made education compulsory and free. Literacy rates in the Soviet Union were very slow, especially in rural areas, but the implementation of Stalin's education policies literacy rate rose to 86% of the population just in rural areas. These policies yielded and nearly completed the disappearance of illiteracy. This was beneficial for society, however, it enabled Stalin to reach more of the population through propaganda and media, promoting himself and party values. The 20 Rules of Student Behaviour. Rule 1 is the study of each school child to acquire knowledge persistently as to become an educated and cultured citizen and to be the greatest possible service to his country. So very much so we have indoctrinization and creating ideal Soviet citizens. Strict rules that students were expected to follow, high expectations of students as future citizens. Bolshevik party values taught in schools, classes and teachers were often monitored by the secret police and education materials were strictly censored by that of the government. The history of Russia and also Stalin's past were taught in schools to instill national pride. Schools became stricter because the education law from 1935 enabled stricter discipline methods by teachers. Outside the school, youth was also targeted by youth organisations with the aim of teaching young generation to be good socialists and to be good communists. Stalin established a heavy focus on maths and science courses that previously replaced by vocational training under Lenin's rule. Lenin implemented it in order to expand growth of society opposed to focusing on the personal advancement of the individuals. He also re-implemented examinations to place students in their future roles as Soviet citizens. Stalin's policies contradicted Lenin's actions, suggesting that Stalin's policies were not implemented with pure intent of following Marxist values and contradictory because of Marxist teachings in schools. 
implementation of these traditional courses expanded from the education of the individual.